You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Today I have the privilege of introducing a dear friend, um, Ava May. When we went to the mission field many years ago, I said this this morning, if it hadn't been for Ava, I don't know that I would have stayed. Um, I probably would have gotten on a plane and come back home and missed the greatest opportunity God ever gave me to know him in a real way. I thank her for her insights. She and Stan and their three children who are there have been there a little while before us. And, I, you know, we could tell you stories. I could tell you the story of the suppository, but I won't do that. <laughs> um, anyway, it's amazing how God brings people into your life and they're forever friends. And I thank the Lord your friendship. I could call her at any time and ask her to pray and I guarantee you she would pray with me on the phone and when I got off the phone she would be praying for me in the days the days and weeks ahead. Today I had the privilege of introducing her. I want you to know that I love this family and she and her husband Stan wrote the chronological material that we went through this past year. I don't know about you, it blessed my heart. So I'm going to pray for her and then I'm going to turn the service over to her. Father, God, we come to you this morning, Lord, and Lord, we feel your presence in a mighty way here. Lord, we pray that this year that you will peel away all the layers of Southside that are not pleasing to you. And Lord, for the enemy, I ask you to bind him. Keep him away, Lord, that when we walk out of this place today, we'll know we've been in your presence. I lift Iva high to you. God, I ask you to allow her to be your voice piece today. And Lord, that we walk out of here different than when we came in. We love you, Lord, in your name we pray. Okay, um, oh, we're on. Um, tell me your name again. W-H. W-H. All right, he has a bookmark for everyone. We're actually going to be using this bookmark, and if you were in the training this last uh, year, year before last, whenever that was, year before last, this past year, um, you, have, you would have received that. It's just a breakdown of the storyline of the Bible, and we're going to go over that this morning. I want to start with just reading a couple of verses. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say how glad I am to be here. I'm very grateful to the Lord for your church, uh, for how God is using you in the community in which you live, and grateful for our friendship goes many years now with Jeff and Sheila and their kids. And I was so delighted when Ledger came up to me and said, hey, Aunt Iva, and uh, because all missionary uh, adults are aunts and uncles. And so he, I'm still an aunt after all this time, and I was really grateful to hear that. Um, as we look at uh, the storyline of the Bible, I want to start out with these verses in Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he, sa- he has set a tabernacle, Tabernacle, can't even talk this morning, tabernacle for the sun, which is like the bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven to, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So in these first verses, what you have is the psalmist is describing us the limitations, actually the limitations of creation. We can only know God's power, his majesty, but through creation we cannot know that God loves us. 
Through creation doesn't tell us that God is a redeemer. Creation is limited to telling us the vast the character of God that's revealed through the scriptures. So what you have is you have a transition in verse 7 and it says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. See, Creation can't do that for us. It takes the Lord to do that. But he says, the Lord is perfect, converting, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and by keeping them there is great reward. What I love about this psalm is it shows the, the vastness of creation, but the limitation of creation to show us that God is a redeemer. But it also shows us the power of God's word. It converts the soul. And so it's important for us to understand that the law of the Lord is not just do's and don'ts, the Ten Commandments. But the law of the Lord is the whole of Scripture. The whole of Scripture shows us that God is powerful from the very beginning of the story. It shows us after Adam and Eve sinned that God enters into the brokenness in which we find ourselves. And he comes in and he gives a promise of redemption and he gives a picture of redemption which sets in motion the remaining of Scripture. And so what you have is Scripture does it has the ability to convert the soul because it gives us hope. Now, one of my life verses is Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which says, For whatever things are written before are written for our learning, so that we through patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So what you have here, so the things that are written before, Paul is not just saying, oh, Romans 1, 1 through 15, 3. No, he's saying all, he only had the Hebrew scriptures. The things that are written before are written for our learning. So as to know some things about who God is and about our predicament and how God has set in motion redemption for our learning so that we through patience or endurance, one version uses. And why does he use this word? Because life is hard and it is tough. And there are some things that we have to endure in the brokenness of life. Not only that, we endure because we have a living hope of the promises of God being fulfilled of divine and great precious promise which says that we can partake of his nature. So the things that are written before are written for our learning. So that through patience and the comfort of Scripture, we might have hope. So how does Scripture, scripture comfort? You know, we're going to see this as we work through the storyline quickly this morning. That the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Ivan May. And it's so comforting to know how gracious and tender and kind and good and benevolent he is to the patriarchs in their brokenness and their dire need. That is exactly who he is to me, Ivan May. And so when God shows up at the burning bush in the Exodus era. When he introduces himself to Abraham, he introduces himself by saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you fast forward to the Gospels, and Jesus is using an illustration, I believe, that teaches the two narrow, the narrow way and the broad way that begins there at the very beginning of the story, is he says, that, now, don't you know that God is the God of the living the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, showing us who God is for the patriarchs is who he is for me. And I am so thankful that we have the word of God, that we can study God's ways, his interaction with the patriarchs, and we can get a better idea of how he interacts with us today. So what I want to do is beginning at the very beginning of the story, explain the story arc or the storyline of scripture. 
Now, you can take the Bible and you can break it down into 14 increments or passages of time. And that's all this is, is a picture of how you take apart the Bible, put it together again chronologically, and you see what God is doing from era to era. Then when you connect what God does from one era to the next era, it begins to tell the story. And that's what we're going to do today. So at the very beginning, you have the creation era. The creation era is Genesis chapter 1-1 through 11-26. And it covers about 2,500 years in five stories. And then, but what you have in each of these eras, you have the fact, the vertical era is symbolic of the fact that God speaks. That when God speaks, he's showing us who he is. He's revealing his character. He's given us instructions to warn us, he's, to guide us. That when God speaks, he has intentions for mankind. So God speaks. And then the horizontal era is whatever God has said he will do. He does in real time in a broken world amongst broken people. Well, that's why we, are, we have hope today, because our God is just like that. So you have creation era. The next thing you have, the patriarch era. And the patriarch era is Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, or 26, through the end of Genesis. And the patriarch era covers about 600 years. And so then you have, from April, the, the, the next era would be the Exodus era. The Exodus era is some of the most difficult reading in the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to explain that quickly and give an overview of that. So it covers those four books, and it covers basically 480 years, approximately that amount of time. Then you come to the Conquest Era. The Conquest Era is the entire book of Joshua. Now, the book of Joshua, it, you know, it's about 35 years to 50 years at depends on which theologian you're actually reading. But it's not a very lengthy period, but it gives great insight of God and his ways with his people. Then you have the Judges era. The Judges era is the entirety of the book of Judges. Now, when you read the book of Judges, you don't realize, unless you're paying attention, to how long the children of Israel in captivity in each of these dark periods of their life. It actually lasts for like 350 to 400 years. That's the book of Judges. Then, at the end, conclusion of the book of Judges, you have a transition in story, the story of Hannah. The story of Hannah who has Samuel, and it's through Samuel that the first king of Israel is anointed. So you have the kingdom era. The kingdom era covers the reigns of Saul, of David, and Solomon. Then Solomon dies, and the kingdom divides. So therefore, you have the divided kingdom. And when you get to this area in the Bible, it's, well, you go back and forth in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you're like, didn't we just talk about that king? So, you, so what's nice about reading the Bible chronologically, you begin to see and understand the timeline and the kings who God raises up to lead his people. And also the prophets that God sends to warn his people to turn back to him. So that is the kingdom, uh, the divided kingdom era. And it lasts <clears throat> um, about 345 years because... Uh, we'll see that in a moment. Then you have the captivity era. The captivity era, cover, two main books of the Bible cover this 85-year period, this 70-year period in Israel's history. Because Jeremiah prophesies, prophesies they'll be in captivity for 70 years. And so you have, Nehemiah, you have uh, Ezekiel and Daniel who are prophets during this period in capture, this 70-year period. Then Israel, then Judah, God brings Judah back to the land of Canaan after their captivity. And um, the return era is covered by Nehemiah and Ezra. And then uh, Malachi, uh, <clears throat> a couple of uh, Mal uh, Malachi, Zechariah, and two other prophets. And then you have the silent era. This is the intertestament period where a lot of stuff is happening. And it's setting the stage for the gospel era. And so even though God doesn't speak in during the silent era, he's spoken about this era in time past, especially through Daniel, talking about the kings that, are good, that God's going to raise up and so on. And God is establishing... Um, the foundation for the gospel 
so that when silence is broken, when uh, the angel speaks to Zechariah and gives him this incredible promise that he and his barren wife would have a son, uh, John the Baptist. So you have the gospel era it covers the life, the birth of Jesus, the life that he lived, the ministry, the um, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are covered in the gospels. And then you have when he ascends to the Father, he hands the baton of leadership over to. Um, his disciples, who are, so it's inaugurated by the Holy Spirit coming down on Pentecost and empowering those believers to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the church is born on Pentecost. And so you have the first seven chapters of Acts tells us what the church is doing, how God empowers them, gives us some drama that takes place, letting us know that these are imperfect, broken people who are desperate for the Spirit of God's work in their lives to make them this new community of God. Why? So that they can take the good news of Jesus Christ and fulfill the great commission of taking the, the gospel to the nations. So from chapter 7, chapter X, it gives us the story of how Stephen is martyred, and through this martyrdom, Paul comes to Christ on the road of Damascus, and then God calls him later to take the gospel, he and Barnabas initially. The first missionary journey, and then the second, and then the third, you have churches that are planted during this period, and so that's the missions era. Now to let you know, we still live in the church era. There is no mission without the church. We are stewards of the gospel message, stewards of reaching the nations for the gospel. Not only that is we're still in missions because as long as there are lost people on the earth, the church is involved in missions, going after the lostness in the world. So we still live in the church age. The church's business is missions. We still live in the missions age because every person deserves to hear the good news of Jesus Christ at least once in their life in their own language. Then you have the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation tells us how it's going to all end. Now... When I go to the library and I'm looking for a good work of fiction, I'll pick it up and look at the cover. I'm like, oh, it's got some interesting stuff on the cover. I open it up, read the fly leaf, and it tells me a little bit of what's going, what, you know, the drama in the story. And I'm like, okay, if it entices me, I flip over to the back and read about the author. Then I find the last pages of that last chapter and I read the last chapter because I want to know how it ends before I invest all my time in reading that book. And what I love about the book of the Revelation, why it gives us hope, knowing how it's going to end. And not only that, it's not an end for us who belong, who are in Christ Jesus. It's a brand new beginning of walking with God again in the cool of the day where we are his people and he is our God. Well, let's get started, okay? You ready? All right, so in cre creation era, there are five stories in creation era. So you have the, crea the creation story itself. And in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, God is showing us so much of who he is. Wait, because he speaks, and this, I love that song, the power of God's word, and billions of galaxies are into existence. You know, but God speaks, and why? God's word is powerful. What God says comes true at every moment. So you have in a creation event, God is showing us order. God is showing us systems. God is showing us uh, the restrictions, the boundaries in creation, within creation itself, the light from the darkness, the waters from the land, and also the animals that they're going to reproduce according to their kind. So what you see, God has a boundary in reproduction. So when he comes to chapter, the end of chapter 1, when he says, let us make man in our image, it's why, according to his likeness, to what? To reproduce according to their kind, which would be more image bearers. How incredible that God was so interested in more people, I call, to drink sweet tea with on the front porch. God just, he made us for relationship and also to exercise dominion on 
the planet. And then in chapter 2, he, gives, he places Adam in this incredible garden where everything is beautiful to the eye and good for food. He places Adam in this garden and he says, oh, you should get used to boundaries by now because I put boundaries displayed all through the creation event. He gives him a boundary in the garden. And this is the boundary he gives him. Now there are two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this tree, you will certainly die. Sounds like a boundary to me, right? So what you see is God's goodness determines the boundaries that he establishes. How awesome is our God? Not only that, he also gives consequences. If you eat of this tree, this forbidden tree, you will certainly die. Now, so why does God speak such a way to man when he places him in the garden? Because before the fall, God desired a faith-based relationship with his image bearers. God is good. His word is true because God has spoken about that tree, it means that Adam is going to have to walk with God by faith to believe that God is good, his word is true, and flat out stay away from that tree. Well, he places them there in the garden. He speaks again and he says, it's not, the first time he says it's not good, that man should be alone. And he takes a rib from his side and makes one comparable to him. And so what is God's desire for them? For them to walk with him in the cool of the day, for them to exercise dominion and subdue every living thing on the face of the planet. For them to appropriate what God has said regarding that tree. Now we know that Adam communicated to his wife, hey, chicka, if you're going to walk with me in the garden, we got a garden rule we need to obey. I mean, he didn't say it like that, but you know what I mean. So he said, there's this tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has said, don't eat of it, lest you die. Chapter 3 opens up and Isis appears early in the story, and Tarius come to kill, steal, and to destroy. And what is his number one goal? His goal is for them to disbelieve that God is good and to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. Because he said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Okay? And then he questions the truth of God's word. Well, if you won't surely die. And so it says that Eve made a decision. She saw the tree was beautiful to the eye and good for food. Now, why is it so important for us to understand what's taking place in Genesis 1 through 3? Because if you don't understand the first chapters of the book, you're going to lose your way through the rest of the book, any novel. So what you have here at the very beginning of the story of God pronouncing his word, don't eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, but you see God's abundant goodness. Look at all that they could have. So it's in the, the temptation, the greatest temptation occurs in, with plenty and lushness, beautiful. He's provided everything for them, given them a boundary. And so the enemy's goal is to focus them on the one thing God says they can't have. Now here's the deal. When you look at the very beginning of the story, God says the real consequences of sin. If you eat of this tree, you will certainly die. Well, nothing had ever died before. There was no context for death. So the enemy comes in and he markets this as an opportunity. This is what the enemy does. He didn't come to Eve and say, hey, chicka, I got a deal for you today. Blue light special, eat of this tree, you won't certainly die. I mean, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have two sons. One's going to kill the other. And then God's going to curse the remaining son. And you're going to set up a whole world, a revolution in motion where everyone does according to their thoughts and the intents of their heart. And eventually God will have to destroy the whole world through a global flood. You think that's what he said? No, he always camouflages his temptation. He always deceives and makes it appear other than it really is. And so he comes in and says, oh, 
this tree, you could be like God, knowing good and evil. So she's saying, you mean I will have power to make choices for myself that I will not have to have any authority over me? And that's very appealing, right? So she takes the tree. She takes for the fruit of the tree. She takes a bite, passes it off to her husband right there with her. And they eat. And everything changes at that very moment. Why? God has spoken. They violated his word and now they've died. They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. So what happens is, is God in his greatness and his goodness, when you look at this, how awesome is our God? He comes after mankind. Mission starts in Genesis chapter 3. So he comes after mankind and he always asks a question. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? See, when God confronts his people, it's always with a question. How did you get here? Why are you living this way? What brought you to this place? See, questions make us ponder. But for them, God asked this question, and this is what we all do since Adam. Well, God, it's really your fault. It's this family you gave me. In fact, it's this woman you gave me. And then she says, well, actually, God is the enemy. He deceived me. So what you see at the very beginning of the story is when we're confronted with sin, we always blame other people. We blame other causes instead of saying, God, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I've violated your commandments. But God in his goodness, when he curses the serpent, he embeds in that curse the first messianic promise. Uh, theologians call this the proto-evangelion. Here you have the promise of redemption. It says there's going to come a seed from the woman who, bam, is going to crush the head of the serpent, who in turn would bruise this hill. Isn't that incredible? God, from the very beginning of the story, just saying, this is what I'm going to do. You watch me. Keep your eyes on me and trust me. So when God gives this promise there embedded in this curse to, to, to Satan, what is God doing? God is reestablishing a faith-based relationship with mankind. When God spoke before the fall, it's the, so that man would believe that God is good, his word is true, and stay away from the forbidden fruit. When God speaks after the fall, it's so that man would believe that God is good, and his, and his word is true, and appropriate it by faith. So when God evicts them from the garden, guess what? They have hope. When they, um, when they enveloped in that culture of lostness and brokenness, that they, these people would be able to live in hope. Why? Because God has spoken about what he's going to do. Well, that's chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 3, verse 21, he gives us the first picture of redemption. So this is a seminal of the gospel, a seed of the gospel. So when he takes had their, their attempts to cover themselves with the leaves, he removes it and he replaces it with skins. So where did it come from? Because God made the first sacrifice. It was God who sacrificed something innocent, something good that he highly valued, and he used the skins to cover their nakedness. So you have the first promise of redemption, and you have the first picture of redemption, and then they're evicted from the garden. So when they're evicted in the garden, they're given hope that God has given a promise of redemption and a picture of redemption. The second generation, you have Cain and Abel. And we're going to speed up here. I'm just trying to unpack the early chapters because that's where the story begins. So in the chapter 4, you have the beginning of two ways of walking. Five stories, four voices in the garden, three characteristics of sin, and two ways of walking. I'm going to present this and go back to the four voices. So the two ways of walking, we're introduced to Abel. And it's a day of worship. And Abel comes to God and offers God the acceptable sacrifice. And God accepts his offering. Where did he learn that from? His parents taught them. You can't come to God and worship without a sacrifice. So that picture, it, it showed, demonstrates his faith that he believed that he was guilty 
and he was offering to substitute the innocent one and God accepted that offering for him. So you have imputed righteousness at the very beginning of the story for a person who dared to take God at his word and God accounts him righteous. Well, Cain's right there in the garden. You're like, no, I'm just kind of going to go to God my own way. And he offers to God the fruit of the ground. But God in his goodness and his gracious, graciousness said, Cain, I reject that offering. <clears throat> that offering that you're seeking to offer is sin knocking at the door. <clears throat> Are you going to rule over sin, have dominion over sin, or are you going to allow sin to rule over you? I think he was probably still a bit of a teenager, and he copped an attitude. And like, no, nah, I'm not going to come to God God's way. <clears throat> and he went out, had a conversation with his brother, and killed him. Now, Jesus says that Abel was a prophet. What was he prophesying? He was prophesying the only way to God is through the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty. That God has made a promise that he will accept the shedding of the blood of the innocent. Speaking of that seed, that animal was just a picture of one day that God would accept the shedding of the blood of the innocent, the perfect one, that last Adam who never sinned, who presented himself as the innocent on behalf of the guilty. So you have this at the very beginning of the story. So then what happens is, is he um, cops that attitude, God curses him. And then when you look at Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5, then you begin to see that, that like a river, you know, that like the Mississippi begins in Minnesota and expands. That's exactly what takes place here in the garden. Because God gives a replacement to Abel. His name is Seth. And it says that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. Then you go back to chapter 4, and it talks about Cain's genealogy. Okay? In Cain's genealogy, these people live outside of the presence of God. And people who live outside of the presence of God, violence characterizes them. Sexual sin, that's what polygamy is, is saying how much is enough. Sexual sin, smack talking. I mean, when you look at how he talks to those two wives, violence lying. It is not a good place to live in. I wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood, would you? No. So it says that over time that these people who lived outside of the presence of God had beautiful daughters. And it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now I want to just help resolve something for you. You can't bring myth into interpretation here of this text. Because God has already laid out that everything reproduces according to its kind. So it is an impossible impossibility for angels, demonic spirits, to come in and cohabit with mankind and produce children. Amen? So what does this show? That over time what happened is the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they began to intermarry with them. Okay? Again, they're making sight-based decisions instead of faith-based decisions. And as a result of it, every thought and intent of the heart becomes evil continually. The world is populated with rebellion flat out across the board except for Noah. Noah finds favor in God's sight, and why? It's only after he builds the ark and after the floods come and destroy every living thing on the face of the earth and after he comes off the ark do we understand his theology. What is his theology? His theology is exactly like Abel's. His theology shines while he comes off the ark and he builds an altar to the Lord, and he offers to the Lord the clean animals that God commanded that he placed upon the ark. And it says in the text that God smells that aroma, and his wrath is satisfied. So what do we see from early on in the creation era? It's only salvation by faith. 
in the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty, it's substitutionary atonement at the very beginning. So let's unpack quickly the four voices that developed there in the garden because these four voices speak today. Well, the first voice is God's voice. The all-wise one, the creator God has spoken and given a mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with more image bearers. Have dominion, subdue everything on the face of the earth and carry out my word, which would be donate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have God's voice speaking. And then we're introduced to the second voice in the garden, Satan. He comes and he speaks and what does he speak? His goal is to kill, steal, and to destroy. His goal is to market sin as something pleasurable. His, deal, his, also, his goal is to tear down the character of God, that God is not good and his word is not true. When Adam and Eve sin, they awaken a third voice. And this voice we hear every single day. It's the voice of the flesh. The voice of the flesh says, satisfy me, satisfy me now. It's impatient. Why? What is the voice of the flesh? The, the, the flesh says, I know I need good six to eight hours of sleep. And the flesh says, no, nah, I'm just going to be a lazy head and take ten. That's just one area. But the flesh has all these demands of being satisfied outside of righteousness through sex, through all kinds of pleasure, through entertainment, all these things. So you have the voice of the flesh that cries out, satisfy me now. And what does Paul said? Put, death, put to death the deeds of the flesh. I mean, so we have to understand that that voice is speaking and we have to take it to the cross. And then the fourth voice that speaks is the voice that we hear every single day, but we often don't discern it. You know what it is? the voice of the world. The world says, conform to me, conform to me, conform to me. Be just like everyone else. And God says, no, through Paul, he says, no, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might know what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So you have five stories, five stories, four voices, three characteristics of sin. So after Adam and Eve sin, now they experience fear, shame, and guilt. Fear, because now they're afraid of God and living outside of his presence. Shame, because what they have done is they've discovered themselves and they are naked. The essence of sin is self-awareness, people. Carrying out whatever you want. The third characteristic is guilt. We all know there's something deeply wrong with us. We've broken God's law and we are no longer innocent. We are guilty. And so every culture, no matter where they are in the world, they're going to be characterized by these sins. Fear, shame, and guilt, three characteristics of sin. The two ways of walking, we've seen that, but there's only one promise of redemption that you have at the very beginning. So when you come to the patriarch era, when God speaks to Abraham, he makes this incredible promise to a man where it's impossible for him to fulfill the promises of God himself. Because God comes to this former idolater and he makes this audacious promise. I know you can't have kids because your wife is barren, but I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to give you land. Through you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so what you see here, it says that Abraham believed God and God accounted to him for righteousness. Well, he's showing us what is the gospel. And then you see him repeating those promises to Isaac, to Jacob, and also to Judah. So it's at this point in the story that we're introduced to Judah. Why, why is Jesus called the Lamb of Judah? Anybody? Because of this promise right here, early in the story. Because when Jacob is prepared to die, and Joseph, they've immigrated to Israel, and he has uh, 12 sons at this time, he lines them all up, and he confers a blessing on each of these sons' heads. And he comes to Judah, and he makes this promise. that takes us back to the promises that God has given to Abraham, and back to the promise he gave Adam and Eve. Actually, also to the promise that you have in the blessing of uh, Noah. 
But he says this, from Judah are going to come kings and lawgivers until Shiloh comes. What is God doing early in the story? He's telling us that the lamb is going to come from Judah. So keep your eye on what takes place in Judah through the rest of the story. So you have this. Um, you have the global famine that occurs during this period uh, that uh, causes the children of Israel to immigrate to Egypt. And you see, what are they doing? They are fulfilling the promises of God. Because in Genesis chapter 15, God spoke about what he's going to do in the future through a dream to Abraham. And on the hills of this dream, this is what he tells them. I know you people don't have any descendants yet, but your descendants are going to go into captivity for 400 years. At the end of that 400 years, I'm going to bring you out, and I'm going to punish your captives. And in your liberation, you're going to plunder them. That's what God sets up hundreds of years before this event happens. So it shouldn't surprise us when the Exodus opens up, the Israel's crying out to God. You have the birth of Moses, who's born... And he has the sense of, you know, I think I'm a redeemer. And so he goes out in the flesh, doing what the best the flesh can do, and it's not acceptable. And he winds up fleeing, and he's in the wilderness for 40 years. Till he meets God at the burning bush experience. And so what you see God's doing is God is raising up a man to fulfill the promise he made hundreds of years before. And so he introduces himself to Abraham, and he connects Abraham uh, to Moses, and he connects his, Moses' life to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which tells us is your life is not disconnected from people in the past. I, I just want to give you a little story I think that might help you. Our youngest son is a pastor in Chesney, um, South Carolina. And so when the second trip, we went to meet him, and there were several older ladies in the church that came to meet us. And so we were talking, and they said... Um, did you ever hear of Bertha Smith? You know who I'm talking about. And I'm like, yeah, I have heard of Bertha Smith. I've read her biography. It is incredible. They call her the woman of revival. She opened up Southern Baptist work in Taiwan when they were kicked out of China. Phenomenal woman of God. Back in the day, Southern Baptist pastors loved to go around saying, I've been rebuked by Miss Bertha. Because she was a force. She saw things clearly black and white. She would proclaim the truth, a woman of God. And so the lady says she was my Sunday school teacher. And I thought, watching what God is doing in Chesney and raising the bar of Bible literacy there through our son and his church and what God is doing there, I wonder, did Miss Bertha pray for her area and that Stephen is a direct answer to her question after she's been dead for 30 years? You never know how your life is connected to the past until you know him. And then he plugs you into his story. And that was free. It's not in my notes, but I, I enjoy it. So what you have here is God brings the children of Israel up out of Egypt like he promised, delivers them. The women plunder the people just like he promised was going to happen. They're in the wilderness, and you know what his desire is? He wants his people to walk with him by faith just like he wants individuals. But again, you know what? They don't walk with him by faith because they've got wrong ideas about who he is. And they crave to go back to eat the leeks and the onions back in Egypt. But what you see God is doing is God is now going to form them into a people of God. So he gives them rules and regulations, and he gives them boundaries. He first gives them boundaries by giving them the tent of meaning to demonstrate there is the holy place, the most holy place, and nobody can enter to the most holy place in that tent of meeting except one time a year, done by the high priest. And so what it is is God saying, I want to be with you, but it's got to be on my terms because I am holy and you are unholy. So it's built around the sacrificial system, the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty. What? Those sins were not, they were only covered every year, but they weren't covered forever. As long as the sacrificial system was in play and as long as the high priest went in, their, their sins were covered to the next year, to the next year, to the next year. So there was no forgiveness just covering from year after year 
after year. So you have this. And God also gives them the book of the law. He gives them the record of their, their history with God from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is where God sets up and establishes why Bible literacy is so crucial to his people. So he tells them, Bible literacy is so crucial to, to people that every seven years, I want you to bring the entire community of people together one time a year, uh, one time every seven years, and read out loud Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Friends, that is a very long worship service. To read it out loud, why? Because most of the people were non-literate, they were not readers. To have the law read to them, why? Because so that they, every seven years, would hear the entire history given to them. They would recite the promises of God, the instructions that God had given them. They would be people of faith knowing that God is good and his word is true. So you see that many other passages where God highlights why Bible literacy is so crucial to Israel. So for they see and understand it is their spiritual vitality is connected to them knowing who he is in his ways, which are given through the book of, book of the law. So you have that and you have the circumcision uh, is uh, carried out initially for those who had not been circumcised in the wilderness. And then you have Moses does, the baton of leadership is passed on to his servant Joshua there in the land. One of the first things Joshua does is he circumcises all those who weren't circumcised in the wilderness. And he celebrates the first Passover outside of the wilderness. And he reads the book of the law communally to the people. He brings the entire congregation together. Frank, hey, these were 2.5 million people. It's not like you hear today. It's like gazillion people. And he reads the book of the law in its entirety to the people. So you see that there are two ways of walking there in the book of Joshua. You have the story of Rahab. I always call her, she's a ho no mo. And uh, I know that's crass, but God doesn't clean her up when he presents her to us. Why is that? Because people, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of God. She did not have a snowball's chance to have access to the gospel. But I'm telling you, over the course of her life, she would hear traders who'd come up from the wilderness telling about this mighty God amongst these people out in the wilderness. So when the two spies show up on her doorstep, she's like, my God can't do squat for me, the God of the people of Canaan, because they worship idols. Her deal was, is I will align myself with the living God of Israel. If you do this, I will do this for you. And she's protected. And she's in the genealogy of Christ. Well, you have a foil story, a contrasting story there at the beginning of Joshua. You have the story of Achan. Achan, hey, he grew up in the church. Achan experienced eating manna every single day of his life. Achan saw the sons of Korah swallowed up because of their rebellion. Achan stood on the margins while Miriam stopped the whole tribe of Israel where she was in seclusion for seven days because of her rebellion against Moses. You couldn't have had more experience of the presence and the miracles of God than Achan did. Access. What access this man had. She had no access and she had faith. He had all access and he had unbelief. Because when God promised them, he says, now, during this Jericho battle, don't take from the plunder. And what does he do? He thinks, well, I'll just take a little bit and hide it in my tent. Because this is what he's probably thinking was, I'm sure everybody's going to take something. It's just a little thing. It's not going to be noticed by God. So he digs a hole, buries it under his tent, and then the second battle occurs at Ai, and they're sorely defeated. Joshua seeks the Lord on why they're defeating this, because it's the sin that's in the camp. And it's Ai. 
So what you have at the beginning of the story, Cain and Abel, you have a repetition. Another story similar to this with Achan and Rahab. The least likely has faith in the living God, but God accounts her as righteousness. She had no access, but she had faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of God. You see him in the lap of plenty. He has seen day in and day out the miracles of God and eaten the manna. He had no belief whatsoever. It's not about access, people. It's about faith. And you have this there in the conquest era. I won't get into the rest of the things that happens there. You have the land that's divided amongst the 12 tribes. And then Joshua dies. And then begins the judges' era. The judges' era soars every thought and intent of a man's heart is only evil continually, just like it was the days of the flood, prior to the flood. Because you have the sin cycles. You have Israel as a community being unfaithful. And it says that everyone does what's right in their own eyes and there's no king in Israel. You have the Levites' absolute failure. I mean, some of the most detailed, graphic chapters of sexual sin in the Bible are the last four chapters of Judges, where you see the absolute failure of the priesthood, that God had designated the priest to live in four towns per uh, different areas all over Israel to be salt and light to the people, to exalt the book of the law, to help people remember to celebrate the feast and so on. And so what's happened, instead of them doing their job, instead of them doing what God has called them to do, they've become just like the peoples around them. Kind of like us today, maybe a little bit. And as a result of that, they... They don't read the book of the law. It's not mentioned one time during this almost 400-year period. So they experience the judgment of God. So you have here Israel sins against God by either intermarrying with the peoples around them, which leads to idolatry and sexual sin. So then God, as a response to that, God raises up oppressors against them. And then Israel finally cry out to God. But it's amazing when you look at it. I think the shortest time of oppression is seven years, and the longest is 40 years. We'll stay under oppression for a long time before we'll humble ourselves and cry out to a living God. But God is so faithful, as soon as they cry out, he raises up a judge, a military lead, a leader, to, to deliver them. And as long as the leader's alive, they experience peace. But as soon as the leader dies, the sin cycle begins all over again. Why? Everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes. The absence of Bible literacy, people don't know, thus saith the Lord. The people don't know God's ways. And as a result, they make decisions based on what they see instead of what God says. Well, you see, God is still faithful. Here in this era, you have this tiny little book called Ruth. And here in this tiny little book is demonstrating that God, in the darkest of days, he is on track still. God is still accomplished in his redemptive purposes. And he's bringing, what, the missing son into Judah through Elimelech, the death of his sons, through Boaz, inter- marrying with, with Ruth and so on. And, but Ruth is a, a Moabite woman. In fact, she's the second record of a, of a woman who's outside of the covenant coming to Christ. Why? Because it says that in the midst of bitterness, Naomi says, I'm going back to, because I've heard that there's bread in Bethlehem. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of God. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. Your God shall be my God. And what is she doing? She's just like Rahab. Based on as little as she has access to the living God, it's enough for her to make a faith-based decision and walk with God by faith. And you have this story of God replacing the missing heir the Leverett one in, in the book of, of Ruth. Now let's fast forward quickly. So you have the kingdom era. You have, um, uh, after this time, we have the story, the transition story I already met, uh, mentioned to you about Hannah. And she has Samuel. And it says about Samuel that he did not let the word of God fall to the ground. Didn't let the word of God fall to the ground. He traveled and he carried seminary to the people. 
Why? Because the Levites had failed in their task. And now you have this lone guy that God raises up to take the book of the law and recovery the book of the law. So then you have um, the children of Israel and his failure. And it's interesting, guys, to pay attention to this. His failure as a dad shows up because his sons are having sex with the women who bring their offerings to the tent of meeting. They do not fear the Lord, nor just like his predecessor, Eli, and their sons. And as a result of that, the children of Israel said, no, we don't want your sons to reign over us. We want a king like the peoples around you. So Samuel goes to God and God says, give them the king they think they want. But tell them, this is what it's going to look like. This king will take their daughters and make them perfumers in his house. Oh, this king will take the best of your land and give it to his servants. This king will heavily tax your people. He will conscript your sons into his army. Still want a king? They're like, yep, we still want a king. And God says this, you're going to get the king you think you want, but I will not hear you when you cry out for deliverance. Listen to this. Saul was the king they thought they wanted. He would have fit on the cover of Times Magazine every single day. He was a head taller than everybody else. He looked so presidential. But he didn't have a heart after God. How do you know? In his third year of his 40-year reign, he so disobeys God that God says, I'm rending the kingdom from you and giving it to another. But God allowed him to reign for 37 more years. I believe the people cried out to God to deliver them from Saul. And God said, you said you wanted this king? How is that working for you? They got the king they thought they wanted. Well, then God raises up, we know in the shadows, David, David, a man after God's own heart. We know he doesn't, you know, he's got sin that he's committed. It's not the path of his life. It's an aberration. It's a, a fallout. Why? Because I believe he's just like up there on the rooftop. He hadn't had a quiet time in a few days. And he sees this woman. Sin is always driven by what you see. He sees this woman that she's beautiful and he, and he inquires about her. The first step is like an inquisition. You want to know a little bit more about it. Then he sins for her. Then he commits adultery. And then he seeks to cover it up by murder. And then you have some months later, God speaks to the prophet at that time, Nathan. And he tells Nathan to go tell David a story. And so David shows up, knocks on the door, and says, I have a story to tell you, King David. And he tells him this story. You know, there's this rich landowner who had like a huge big flock, and he had a guest coming. But he lived next door to this really poor guy who only had one lamb. So instead of taking one lamb from his vast flock, he goes and takes that one lamb from this poor guy. And David's like, he gets all indignant. And you know what David does? David quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. He knows God's word. He quotes and he demands fourfold be replaced for that one stolen lamb. And Nathan said, it's you. And the difference between Saul and David is their repentance. Because David, Saul is just like, no, dishonor me before the people. And he did not repent before God. But David said, against you only have I sinned. And he understood substitutionary atonement. In Psalm 32, Psalm 51, but he says, Lord, wash me with hyssop and I shall be whiter than snow. That's what the hyssop was, what they used to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He understood substitutionary atonement, that a person's righteousness is not based on what they do or don't do or how bad they are, the, the acts that they've, they've done. No, their righteousness is based on God accepts the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty, no matter what you have done in the past. That's why it's such good news. That's why creation cannot tell us the redemption story. That's why only the Bible tells us that God is a redeemer. Fast forward quickly, Solomon becomes king. Solomon is not a man after God's own heart. He starts out well, 
But I say 700 wives and 300 concubines is a problem. I mean, Jesus says no man can serve two masters. And he's got 700. I don't know. Anyway, you'll find humor in it later. Uh, but you see that Solomon was a man of vast appetite. He just could not say no to the flesh or to the world. He built his own military might by going back to Egypt, just like God had forbid them to do, and so on. His heart departed from the Lord. But even in the midst of in his old age, he wrote Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is where he sums up his message. All is vanity. Getting wealth is vanity. Being poor is vain. Well, all, everything under the sun is vanity. But he concludes it at the, at the very end of that book. He says, this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. He dies. The kingdom divides. Rehoboam, his son, is granted two nations, two, two tribes. Judah, because God had promised that through Judah the king is going to come to seed. And Benjamin. And then you have the northern tribe of Israel departs, and that's where you have the divided kingdom. The northern tribe of Israel has 20 kings, and every single one of those kings is wicked. The book of the law is not read one single time in their 209-year existence, and they go into captivity by the Assyrians. Judah lasts for 345 years. They only have four godly kings during this period. One, and the, I'm going to finish with this, was Josiah. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. He began to clean the idols out of northern Israel. Then he began to clean them out of the land of Judah. He began to clean them out of Jerusalem. And then he began to clean them out of the most unusual place, the temple, cleaning the idols out of the temple of the living God. And when they cleaned the idols out of the temple, you know what they discovered? The book of the law, hidden in plain sight. They bring out the book of the law, the high priest finds it. I'm like, how does he justify his job description? He only has two jobs. And he takes it to the king. The scribe reads it to the king. And the king leaves, leads Israel in great repentance. He puts on ash next to his body and sackcloth. And he brings out the book of the law. And he, congregate, he, he brings together the entire congregation. And he reads out loud Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it's in Deuteronomy 28 when he says, I'm going to bless those who walk in obedience to me. He outlines the consequences of blessing. You'll never experience famine. He gives all these great rewards for that. But for disobedience, and he gives consequence after consequence after consequence of prolonged disobedience, and one of which is you'll eventually go into captivity. Well, they experience a revival. Joshua dies from a foolish act of later he didn't listen to the counsel of God and then a few years later Judah goes into captivity just like God had promised God raised up Jeremiah to tell him it's going to be 70 years but I'm going to bring you back to this land why what God promised he was going to do hell could not prevent he brought them back to the land they rebuilt the temple they rebuilt the altar they brought back Bible literacy through Ezra you I mean you read Ezra uh, Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, phenomenal. You know why you have this right here on your, your podium? You know why you have a podium right here on this? It's not for me. It's not for Brother Jeff. No, it's for proclamation of God's word so that everyone would hear the word of God. And you see that, that whole thing is, comes out of that text. And so what does he do? He does exactly, this is where I got this whole thing from. He begins with creation. And in a short period of time, he retells their story. 
He concludes the telling of their story of where they are in the return era, and he makes this statement. Here we are, servants in the land that God had told us that we would inherit. See, here's the deal. We are so content to be a servant instead of an heir. And so I want to end with this note, not going on further just for the sake of time, to bring us back to where we started. People must know God's story. If you don't know God's story, you will not have a living hope. If you don't know God's story, you will not endure a trial, a difficulty. If you do not know God's story, you will not be comforted in the midst of brokenness of life. You will not learn who God is in his ways. But it's only as you know his story that he will be comforted through scriptures. You'll learn that you will have a living hope. So I know you read through the word of God last year. Do it again this year. I've read through Genesis to Revelation every single year since I was 16 years old and I'm 57. Count that up. I've been reading the Chronological Bible since, I think, in like 1999. And it's, it's, I see stuff I've never seen before. And here's the wonderful thing about God's work, for me personally, a testimony, is I'm not the same person who read it last year. I'm a year older. I've got more challenges and different challenges. And it's amazing. A text that I read last year that I never, you know, didn't see that, I'll read it this year, and I'm like, God will so speak to encourage my heart because I'm not the same person who read it last year. That's why it's not enough to read it and walk away. James says, don't be forgetful here. Don't look in the mirror and walk away, Paul says. No, to hold it up again and again to see who we are. We're desperate in our plight. But as a window to see who God really is, that he's promised to enter into our stuff to redeem us if we trust in him, and we need him every day. We, the gospel is not for Ivan May in 1976, in the summer of 1976. Just for then. The gospel is just as relevant and needy for my life today. I need him. My righteousness is not what I do or don't do. My righteousness is based on the shedding of the blood of the innocent Jesus Christ on my behalf. Because he died and he was buried and he rose again, I could have a living hope. And not only that, I could have a new life. This is what Paul says in Romans. He says, you know, if we died with him and we're buried, we'll be raised to walk in newness of life. And he goes on to say, the righteous requirements of the law are not fulfilled in him who walk according to the flesh. Uh, the righteousness of the law is not, not fulfilled in him who walk according to the flesh. No. Yes. But walk according to the spirit. You know, I can't even quote that verse now. But the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who, not walk, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what does this mean for me? The law was on the outside demanding a standard that I could not meet. So what God does is God comes on the inside by the Spirit to meet that demand. And when he comes in, he gives me the ability to obey him. So I can be, see that the law is like drive 70 on the outside. And you can pass that flying by, I was flying net 79 this morning um, down here. And I passed the police and I took my foot off. Why? Because the speed limit is 70. But you know that sign didn't have power to get in my car and take my foot off the pedal. But this is what God, the Holy Spirit, does. It's better than the speed limit sign on the outside. He comes in with the power from the inside to conform to the outside. Isn't that incredible? So now I have power by the Holy Spirit to live the life that God has called me to live, and it's glorious. It's, not, it's, not, it's demanding, but it's not enslaving. It's enslaving to righteousness, but it's not a burdensome walk with God. So I want to encourage you again, read your Bible again and again and again and again. God has limited the revelation of himself to the word of God. Amen?
I'm done. She is not not done. Because <laughs> uh, I don't think Iva in her life will ever be done until one day she stands before the Lord and the Lord says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, the Bible is such a fascinating book. The Africans call it the Shoko Ramwadi in the language of the Shona people. The word of God and God loves you he has uh, provided every means by which you can not only be redeemed and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ but as Iva said he then gives you the power to then see the transformation the metamorphosis in the Greek the metamorphosis the transition the transformation of your mind and my mind into the image of the mind of Christ and so God loves you. And if you're here today and you never received him as your Lord and Savior, and today you've listened to this and you've thought, you know, I don't know him. He's not inside of me, but I want him to be. Then the Bible's very simple there. We just simply repent of our sin. It means that we are grieved. We agonize. We, we feel the weight and the burden of our sin and the inability within ourselves to anyway be able to change our life, change our human nature, change that flesh. We, we have no victories. When we repent, we just simply say, Lord, I can't do it. Will you come in and do it for me? And Christ comes in through the power of his Holy Spirit. He forgives us and he begins through the process of that transformation to change us into the image of his son. And we see our lives change. And if you don't know him today, Reggie will be here. Ledge will be here. I'll be here at the front. People like uh, Sheila and Ivan and Tamara, they're here at the front. They can counsel with you and pray with you. Uh, but we want to do that. Let me pray now. Then our praise team lead us in an invitation. And you come today. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, what a precious story it is, Lord. And I hate to use the word story because as I have taught so often by that great writer Luke who inspired by your Holy Spirit was historically accurate to the minute detail, even the political organization of Rome, even the smallest details of storms and ships and the Apostle Paul. Dear Lord, this is not a fictitious story that is made up into the mind of, of Moses and others. This is history, his story, the story of Jesus Christ as John the Baptist would invade that time of silence 400 years and echo across that Judean hillside, behold the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. The story is continuing and through the blood of Jesus Christ we have forgiveness clothed in his righteousness and not our own. The war is over as far as the war for our redemption. It has been paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. As old Simon Jaina would say to me, Baba, munyama. God put on the flesh of man, invaded his creation to do what only he could do, no lamb could do. He, everything, all the story was pointing to Jesus. 
And so, Lord, you alone, you defeated death. You ascended to the right hand of the Father, and as the writer of Hebrews says, you're our great high priest who makes intercession for us now. There are some in this room who may not know you, but, Lord, you've spoken to their heart, and we pray, dear Lord, as we go into this invitation, that, Lord, nothing would keep them from coming today and saying, I want to be saved. I want to know this God. I want him to live in me, and I want him to change me. So, Lord, whatever the decisions may be, it may be to come to this altar, a fresh commitment this year to get into the Word of God and begin to, just like a cow who chews on the cud, dear Lord, that we begin to chew and digest your Word, applying it to our lives, giving the Holy Spirit the power to war against our enemy by the sword of the Spirit, your Word. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Be with us, dear Lord. Lead us now. In the name of Jesus, amen.